So if you'd like to open your Bibles there. This story is affectionately known as the widow's mites. And uh, in the King James, the two little coins that she has are called mites. It's the smallest coin in the Roman system. In the Greek, they're called leptas. Um, So if you're not familiar with that saying and you feel like everyone around you knows what I'm talking about, it's just two small coins, almost uh, worthless. The metal's so thin um, it just was all she had left. And so the widow's mites, she, she doesn't have bugs. It's not, not those mites. So the widow's mites, many people love this story as a symbol for loving God with everything that you have. And it's often preached that way. And I honestly think it's preached incorrectly that way. I don't think that was Luke's intention for this story. And if you've been taught anything from this pulpit over the years, it's that context is key. Context is key. Don't rip a passage out of the context and then try to interpret it. So let me read you the passage with some context And maybe you'll see the meaning before I even get there in the sermon. Luke chapter 20, beginning with the 45th verse. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses. And for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they out of all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. This is the word of our Lord. Notice that nothing positive nor negative was said about the widow's giving. Just the statement that, in a sense, she gave more than everyone else because she gave all that she had to live on. No requirement that this is what we're supposed to give. If that's the case, we should recollect the offering this morning, and then you would be destitute the rest of the week or until your next payday. So certainly from a pragmatic sense, Jesus cannot possibly be teaching that you're supposed to put in everything you own into the plate. And all God's people said, whew. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, we can certainly see a, a principle in play here that people who thought they were giving a lot, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. 
But what I would like to draw our attention to this morning is the flow of the passage. Not pull it out of context, not attempt to preach a sermon on giving using the widow's mites as an example. In fact, we'll have a three-part outline. The story starts with an accusation. Beware of the scribes and a whole list of accusations God is making against the religious leaders of Israel. And then it ends with a condemnation. You see this beautiful building, this temple that was supposed to be to honor God and point people to God and demonstrate their need for mercy and forgiveness as they brought their offerings and their sacrifices. It's coming down. All of it. Stone by stone. That's how bad it is. It's, it's coming down. It reminds me of, uh, oh, that old movie, Scent of a Woman, where he's like, in my younger days, I would have taken a flamethrower to this place. You know, it, it, it's, it's that bad. And yet, his disciples couldn't see how bad things had gotten. They were enamored of this beautiful temple, this gold-plated temple encrusted with jewels and all these votive offerings that the rich would bring and place around the base of the treasury. And they missed the point. They missed the whole point. Everybody was missing the point. But God himself shows up and says, here I am. This building's supposed to be for me. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. With your lips you praise God, but your heart's far from him. And you religious leaders, you ought to know better than everyone else. Jesus has been rebuking the religious leaders for many chapters now. Chapter upon chapter upon chapter, and I'll I'll read some of the rebukes. But to, to go through all of that and then say, we interrupt our normally programmed sermon for a sweet little sermon on an old lady who gave generously. Okay, now back to the condemnation and rebuke. It, it, it doesn't fit the flow. Why would we attempt to do that to the text? Let me, in fact, take you back to Luke chapter 11. The rebukes have been going on for at least 10 chapters. And if you've been here in church or been listening online, you know that it's been confrontation after confrontation with the various religious leaders. We have the, the scribes who are the lawyers, those in charge of interpreting the scripture, the Pharisees who are kind of the grassroots leaders of all the synagogues, the Sadducees who ran the entire temple enterprise, the chief priests, all of these people were supposed to be pointing people to God and the glory of God and our need for his mercy and instead were drawing all the attention to themselves and getting rich off of the whole religious system. And so Jesus says in Luke 11, I'm picking it up at the um, 37th verse. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal, like we've got these rules. We've got these rules. You're supposed to wash, and you're supposed to wash a certain way and for a certain amount of time. And they were man-made rules. 
Yes, there was Levitical rules about ceremonial washing, but not to the extent that the Pharisees had made up. There's a certain way to wash and a certain, certain bowls and certain traditions, and Jesus just skipped it all. He just started eating. And they were like, what's up with this? You come into my house and you, you don't wash and you're supposed to be this holy man and you ought to know better and you've insulted us by not washing and, and we're rebuking you. And Jesus says, now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. Well, could you imagine? He's invited to lunch and to insult his hosts. But they needed to hear this. The Lord rebuking them because nobody else had the authority or the gumption to tell these people how ridiculous and ugly their system of legalism had become. These are the religious leaders of Israel. So everybody's like, well, they ought to know. They have the scriptures. They're the learned ones. They study the scriptures all day long. If they say this is what we're supposed to do, I guess we're supposed to do that. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you're so focused on the outward appearance that you ignore the heart. You're full of robbery and wickedness, you foolish ones, which is like the greatest insult. In an honor-shame society, to call someone a fool is worse than calling them a sinner. I have found that in our society, people would rather be called a sinner than a fool. You know, hey, if I'm in sin, let me know. But sometimes that some things are so foolish that they're practically sinful. Yeah, I guess technically you have the freedom to do that, but why would you? People would rather hear, I'm in black and white sin than I'm acting like a fool. It should be the other way around. In fact, the greatest fool is he who thinks he never falls into foolishness. Foolishness is bound up in our deceitful hearts. We need the wisdom of the Lord. We need rebuke and instruction and correction. First person plural, we, myself included. And if you've lived any amount of life as a Christian, you realize that even when you know the right thing to do, you find yourself living foolishly at times. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. You Do things for the right motive. Do things in love. It's an old word for love, charity. Not give to the poor, but do out of the joyous blessing, out of gratefulness and thankfulness in your heart. Give out of charity. Don't give for show. Don't give to check the box. But woe to you, Pharisees. It's a horrible thing to say to people if it weren't true, but it is true. Woe to you. May God judge you. That's what woe means. May God judge you. Remember what Isaiah says in the sixth chapter of Isaiah when he is in the throne room of God and he sees God's glory and he says, Woe to me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips surrounded by a people of unclean lips. What, you know, woe is me. Woe to you Pharisees for you pay t- 
a tithe of even your mint and your rue and every other garden herb. Your, your dill seeds, just meticulously counting out exactly one-tenth. Because that's the rule. And I'm a good person because I tithe. And everybody knows I tithe because I show them that I tithe. And yet, you disregard justice and the love of God. Because these things are harder to quantify. Right? It's harder to quantify justice and love. What does a tenth of justice look like? What does a tithe of love look like? Well, God actually asks us to love Him with all our heart, not just 10%. But money and herbs... You can count them. And so this is part of our sermon this morning. One principle I really want you to key in on is be careful of things that you can quantify in order to determine if you're righteous or a good person or you love God. God puts more weight on the things that can't be counted than the things that can But because we're materialistic in the sense that we come into this world and we put faith more in things that we can touch and see and taste, those are where we tend to put our focus. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Notice Jesus says, don't replace the tithing with these things, but you should put more emphasis on on the things that can't be counted without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. They they think you're the living, but you're the dead. They think you're the living because you're the important people and the beautiful people and the intelligent people and you're in charge of everything. You're the people that society looks up to as examples of what it looks like when you've arrived. And yet, you're like dead men. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, so he's rebuking the Pharisees and one of the lawyers, one of the scribes, who's at dinner, because remember what Jesus says about the scribes. You have to have a couple of scribes at your dinner for adornment. They, it's, not a, it's not a fancy dinner without a scribe being there. Because you need somebody to meticulously make sure the law is being handled perfectly, the ceremonial law. And so I imagine they would look up the table to the host and the scribe would be there and are we doing everything right? And they would piously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how they got invited to all the best dinner parties. They had to put their stamp of approval on everything. And so one of the lawyers said to him and replied, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too, because like we do that too. You know, don't you know you're insulting us too? There wasn't like a concern for the Pharisees. Don't you know you're insulting the Pharisees? It's like, go ahead, insult them. You know, but hey, that's cutting a little too close to home. What is being implied here? And Jesus says, oh, there's no implications. Nothing's being implied. But he said, woe to you lawyers as well. 
For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them will, uh, they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation because you guys have the scriptures, you have the record of what happened to the prophets. You ought to know better. You ought to have corrected it and instead you're falling right in line with your fathers. So woe to this generation. Woe to you lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You've locked the door that people need to go through to have access to God. You were the gatekeepers and you have locked the door. Not only do you not get in, but you keep other people from getting in. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile And to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. And that's what's been going on since chapter 11. So when we get to the widow showing up at the temple, at the Passover, and putting in her last two copper coins, and now she's destitute and is going to go home and starve to death, this isn't a sweet story about how to give. So I have a three-part outline this morning. We're going to look at the accusation and then end with the condemnation. And in between, the story of the widow becomes the substantiation. I, you know, trying to alliterate there. The proof, the evidence that the accusation's true. People's Exhibit A, this poor widow, just had to give up everything according to your teachings for God to be pleased with her. This is the God you are presenting to people. You're the religious leaders of Israel. You're supposed to let people know what God is like, what his heart is all about. You have the scriptures. And here, no one has noticed that this poor destitute widow has now signed her death warrant. All in an attempt to be pleasing to God according to the teachers of Israel. And by extension, what was Israel supposed to be? A light to the Gentile world. So you are telling the whole world, this is what God is like. And here is God himself showing up. And he's like, the whole thing is coming down. It's corrupt to the core. The only way to reform a a corrupt system is to reform the leadership. And so you either replace the leadership or you reform the leadership. And these men were beyond reform. He's been teaching them and they won't listen. They're prideful. They're stubborn. They're self-righteous. They hate him. And so the whole system has to come down. It took 40 Three years for Herod and God's people to build that temple. 
And you begin to think, well, why would God waste all that time and money and energy and just have the whole thing torn down? Because God could care less about the building. Look at Europe. Great cathedrals that took decades to build. In some cases, artisans working on cathedrals they would never see finished, knowing this is for the glory of God and I'm doing it for the glory of God. And they did glorify God at one time. And now they don't because the religious leaders in Europe have rejected the word of God. And so now we're seeing these great cathedrals turn into uh, anything and everything. Restaurants, even temples for Islam. Because God has said, I am the Lord, there is none like me. I don't need a house. The heavens are my throne room and the earth is my footstool. A house of worship can be a wonderful, God-glorifying, God-exalting thing. But it can quickly turn into an edifice of corruption filled with people whose hearts are far from God. The widow's story then is wedged between an accusation and a condemnation. We've looked at the accusations. Jesus kind of repeats himself here. You hear a lot of the same themes. Beware of the scribes. How would you like to be in a class of people that God himself shows up in the person of Jesus Christ and says, beware of you? You know, wow. It doesn't get any worse than that. It's, it's not like... Uh, you know, be careful around these people. It's beware, stay away from them. Beware of the leaven, remember the Pharisees, the, the, the yeast, the leaven, the false teaching that ruins the whole lump. Stay far away from it. Who like to walk around in long robes. So there's accusation number one. They like to draw attention to themselves instead of to God. Walking around in white flowing robes with tassels all the way to the ground. Stopping at these ceremonial wash stations and publicly washing while everyone's looking because I just walked past a Gentile and oh some of their Gentileness may, may have rubbed off on me. And they loved the respectful greetings. They insisted on being called great teacher, rabbi. Or even my Lord. Or even father. Names reserved for God. Well, it's appropriate because we represent God to the people. And people had to stand up as they passed. Stop what you're doing. Stand up. Do you... Want to honor God? Yes. Do you want to honor His Word? Yes. Then you need to honor the men in charge of interpreting His Word. How pious, how smug, how self-righteous. And everyone knew they were hypocrites. But when you don't know the Scriptures yourself, when you can't read the Scriptures, when you aren't the ones interpreting the Scriptures, then you end up saying, well... They ought to know. They're the leaders. They're the learned ones. They have the scriptures. I guess this is what God wants. Who am I to question? 
They loved the chief seats in the synagogues. Remember we said they sat up front. And they leaned their backs against the chests that hold the scriptures. And often would sit there and hold the scroll in their arms. The, the gatekeepers of the word of God. In places of honor at banquets. The, the, the left and the right sitting on the left hand and the right hand of the host, the, the best places of honor at the banquets, who devour widows' houses. That's strong language. Devour widows' houses. How, how do they do this? Well, they're also the lawyers. They're in charge of the legal system. They can, they can interpret the law in such a way to bilk widows out of their money. They were good with bilking everyone out of their money, but it's especially devastating to take advantage of a widow. And we know from the scriptures that God has a special place in his heart for the widow and the orphan. And they should know this. There's no excuse. They know it, and not one of them said anything about it. Nobody corrected anyone else about it. They all just went along with the system. And to make it all look very religious, they offered long public prayers. And Jesus says these will receive greater condemnation. Why a greater condemnation? Because they should know better. They're the leaders. They're the teachers. If the society is corrupt, it's because they were listening to the leaders and the teachers who taught that your wealth is proof that God is happy with your righteousness. And your poverty was evidence that God was displeased with you. So think about how the whole system works. The lawyers interpret the law. The rich come... Pay the lawyers well. The lawyers interpret the law to benefit the rich. The rich come and give a lot at the temple. And everyone goes, wow, they must be really righteous, holy people. Look how rich they are. Look how much they're blessed by God. Maybe if I gave more, God would bless me. And so the poor would give more and more and more. But it looked like very little compared to what the rich... Now, who got the money that went into the temple treasury? The people running the temple, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, and the whole cycle repeats, and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And it all appears that this is exactly the way God wants the system to work. It's disgusting. It's dishonoring, it's, it's sacrilegious to think God would set up a system this way. It impugns his name. It's public libel and slander against the name of God. You're supposed to be, be the people representing God. This is what you're telling people God is like. God comes down and says, enough of this. I'm taking the whole system down. In particular, 
this passage then focuses on the, the giving of money at the temple. Now you have to understand, it's different than the way you just gave your offerings. Very different. This temple was extravagant. It was gold-plated. When the sun hit it in the morning, you could see it for miles around. It drew attention to the glory of man and not the glory of God. It was, it was a temple for Herod to glorify himself. It was roughly the proper dimensions that God had laid out in his word. And a lot of the religious practices that were supposed to go on according to God's word, the whole sacrificial system, was in place. But the entire leadership was corrupt. Remember, Jesus comes in and kicks over all the money-changing tables. They would only take certain denominations of coins, and if you were coming out of town, you had to exchange your money and pay whatever exorbitant exchange rate that they charged. If you didn't have the right kind of animal to sacrifice, even if it was the right kind of animal, they could, the chief priest could say, no, there's a blemish on this one. You're going to have to buy one of ours, and we can charge anything we want for it. He's, Jesus said, this is my father's house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. And he kicks over all the tables. And he won't let anyone buy or sell in the temple courts. But people are still coming to give their offerings. And plenty of people are coming to give their offerings with the right motives. So Jesus doesn't want to stop people from worshiping. But picture this. Because this is not what the Levitical law spells out for the temple. They had put 13 boxes, treasury boxes, metal boxes, with, in Hebrew, over each box, what particular thing you'd like to give God an offering for. So, like, categories. And to get your coin into the box, there was a long inverted trumpet. So funnel side up. And you throw your coin in there. And no paper money, so it's all coins. And the more expensive the coin, the, th- the thicker the metal, right? So what did, what did the widow put in? Two little copper coins, so thin that you probably couldn't even really hear it go in. But the whole thing was designed for you to hear what everybody was giving, like a Vegas casino. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. You know, you had a lot of coins to give. I wonder if some of these people would trade in their higher denomination coins for smaller just so they could stand there longer, you know. Can I have change for a silver dollar giving nickels? Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. And go over to this box because I really want to honor God for this thing too. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. Oh, don't forget about this box over here. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Could you imagine if you guys came up to give your offering and we scanned your check and it put it up on the screen, right? They were an auditory culture, oral language culture, storytelling culture. We're visual, you know. Oh, whoa, hey, look at that. And the next person in line has to one-up them. And, and that's what they do at fundraisers. And I guess it's more appropriate fundraisers. You know, we try to up the ante. 
but not appropriate when you're coming to a house of worship to say, I love you, God, and I trust you, and I give because you have said this is a way to, to say thank you. This is a way to discipline your heart to not put your trust in money, right? Goodness, I could have spent this money on more clothes for my kids or a nicer car or, or whatever. When you give that money, you are saying, I trust in the Lord and not money. I trust that this money is going to go to things that have eternal value. And in as much as the church uses the money for the Great Commission, and we're honoring God, and we're demonstrating where our real trust, where our real love is. You have to be careful with money. It's a barometer of the heart. Jesus says, on the one hand, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal, right? But the scriptures also say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's nothing wrong with being rich. You can be a rich sinner and you can be a poor sinner. You can sin in your poverty, being envious of what everyone else has and wanting to steal. Or you could be a sinner in your riches, thinking, well, I deserve all this. I earned it. Where's God's grace? Where's the humility? Where's the recognition that all it would have taken was one bad investment, one act of nature destroying what you've built up, one illness you didn't plan for, and you could be impoverished just like that. On the other hand, then, the heart is deceptively wicked. It is dangerous to quantify your love for God by how much money you give. Last year I loved him this much. I'm upping my love for God this year. You get your IRS statement back and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You know. Or you glance over at the chap next to you and what they put in the plate. Kind of hard to do now. We don't give a lot of cash, but... Remember a time I was at the store, I've told the story before, but it just kind of tickles my heart. It's human nature on display. It's the day before Easter Sunday. Everyone's at the market buying stuff they probably should have bought earlier. And grabbing a few last things at the market, and then I picked the line that I'm pretty sure was going to go the fastest, but what is it about Murphy's Law? My wife was just telling me at Costco yesterday, she's like, this is the shortest line ever at Costco. Oh, boy. So this guy wants to pay with the 20, and the drawer didn't have enough change. So it's, you know, I need a manager on uh, register four, but the manager's busy, and we're all waiting in line impatiently, wishing we had gotten into that other line. And shame on me for assuming that the line with the old lady was going to go slow, but it actually went really fast. She didn't pay with a check, and uh, I'm behind this Yahoo. Now I'm sinning. It's the day before Easter, and I'm, I'm mad at this guy. And finally, a manager comes over and makes change, and he, he opens his wallet, and his brother goes, you, uh, you had a credit card. 
Why don't you just put it on your card? And he's like, well, I know we're going to church tomorrow, and I wanted something to put in the offering plate. And I didn't want to put a 20. So, and his brother goes, you cheap. You go to church once a year, and you couldn't put in more than five bucks. You know, what is wrong with you? You held that money. He just, he just it was like a Southwest Airlines commercial. You want to get away? You know, there was nowhere to hide. And it reminds me all the more what theologians call the gaze of God, G-A-Z-E, the gaze of God. When you live a, uh, the Christian life, you realize that God is omnipresent, and He's omniscient. He knows your heart. And that's probably the sweetest thing out of the story to me. If we want to find something sweet in the story, is everyone was ignoring this poor widow, and Jesus saw her. Jesus saw what nobody else saw. They were busy looking at the gold-plated temple, encrusted in jewels, important people showing up, throwing their coins in, you know, just the people watching. Do you like to go and people watch? I do. You know, it's just people fascinate me, and you're like, oh, look at this guy, you know. How much is he going to throw in? Did he look to his left and his right to make sure everyone was paying attention before he started putting his coins in? And here Jesus sees what no one else saw. I mean, because someone should have said, Hey, I know that woman. She has nothing. What are you doing here? Why are you giving your last two coins? Let me help you out. God doesn't want you to go destitute. So that's the substantiation. This is Jesus' proof that the whole, story, the whole system had become corrupt. Because the system taught that the more you put in, the more you love God. The more you put in, the more you love God. And the more you have, the more God loves you back. How twisted is that? And we would say, who would ever think that? It's quite common. It's more common than you would think. And it's probably crept into your own heart at times. Think about how many times you've done a good deed and before the thank you came out of the other person's mouth, you were already patting yourself on the back and you're like, where did that come from? You should feel good when you do something that is kind. You should feel good when you're generous. But how easily our heart crosses over into thinking, and I'm a little bit better person than everyone else. I bet God's really smiling on me today. And once that attitude creeps into your heart, I, I have news for you. He's probably not smiling at that. You know, you, you, you can keep your gift. God doesn't need it. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's not destitute. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need a house to live in. He does these things for our sake because we need to be disciplined. We need that discipline. We do need tangible ways to show we're trusting in Him. It's an honor to give. It's a privilege to give. It's a privilege to give to the Great Commission. God can save souls without us, but He says, partner with me. I'll give you the gifts. I'll give you the money. I'll give you the Scriptures. I'll provide everything. 
you show up in faith and do it with a cheerful heart. The hardest thing that you would ever have to do is get saved, and he's done that for us. All of it. All of it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So now we don't have to worry about, did I give enough? It's the first question I ask JWs when they come to the door. So how many doors before you're saved? I try not to be flippant about it, but I just want to know. Man, you're giving up a whole Saturday to knock on doors? That's, that's honorable, I guess. But how many doors do you have to knock on? Like, when do you have assurance? So I have assurance now. Because it's not about knocking on doors. The only door I had to knock on was the door Jesus said, Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And you could come and you could give. You could serve at church and not be like, I hope I'm serving enough. And you can give cheerfully and not have to worry, did I give enough? I don't know what you gave. Nobody in church leadership sees what you give. That's a good policy, right? So we don't play favorites. I don't know how much you make. You know how much I make. (laughs) It's in the church budget. I think that's good for accountability too. The thrust of the sermon here is that leadership can become corrupt. Power corrupts. But we need leaders. And so God has built systems into place to guard against our deceitful hearts. And the best way to hold leadership accountable is you knowing the Scriptures. You knowing the Scriptures. So those teaching the Scriptures, there's mutual accountability. Anytime God's people don't have the Scriptures, that's when the funny business happens. Well, I, I guess that's what the Scriptures must say. They're the, they're the ones who know. What does Paul say? Be like the Bereans who study the Scriptures. They hold their leaders accountable. It's not just the leaders holding you accountable. It's mutual accountability. It's mutual submission, submitting to one another, as the Bible teaches. All of us submitting to the authority of of the scriptures. The authority doesn't lie in me. The authority lies in the scriptures. Inasmuch as I interpret the scriptures correctly, that's the authority of God. But if I get the interpretation wrong, somebody speak up. Somebody speak up. And not on the Facebook comments. I hate that. (laughs) People just make fools out of themselves on that. You, you, You make an appointment. You come in and Like Jesus said, you go to your brother face to face. So in the substantiation, in the Greek, the verb put in occurs three times in a row, which for English teachers, that's like a horrible, horrible way to write. Get a thesaurus out. Use a synonym for crying out loud. There's other words for, you know, contributing. And in fact, if you're using the NIV or the ESV, I think it... it, Changes one of the words to contribute. But Jesus purposefully uses the same verb three times to draw his disciples' attention to put in. Stop looking at all the jewels and all the gold. 
Look, what did they really put in? What was really, that guy put in a lot, she didn't put, no. Look again, what was really put in? They gave out of their abundance. It cost them nothing. Really, it cost them nothing. Their life isn't going to change one bit. That, that doesn't hurt their lifestyle. It cost her everything. She put in more. But Jesus doesn't say, good for her. That is not the way I think this message should be preached. It isn't commending her. It's not condemning her, nor is it commending. I'm going to condemn the remote. Can I just have the next slide, please? Thank you. A little humility helps. The story is wedged between an accusation, a a prophecy of imminent condemnation. Therefore, the meaning has to be tied to the context. We mistakenly assume Jesus intended it to be a commendation that the widow gave all the money she had. But why would Jesus want a destitute widow to go penniless? I know, it's like, that'll preach. Whether you want more money in the offering, which is horrible, or... To say, and figuratively, since she gave everything she had for Jesus, we should give everything we have spiritually. All right, it sounds clever, but it's not what the text is teaching. Does the Bible elsewhere teach us to give our all? Yes. Ooh, another one is since Jesus paid it all on the cross, we don't have to pay it all like the widow. I like that. That'll preach. In fact, I'm preaching it right now. Because I think what was going on was the system had taught this widow that I do have to give it all. I have one last chance. Look at me. I must be a horrible sinner. I'm a widow. I lost my husband. I'm poor. God's hand of judgment must be on me. And I've got two small coins left. It's my last chance to make things right with God And she needs to hear Jesus paid it all so you don't have to. And because he lives, you can live. And if you want to give those two coins out of the cheerfulness of your heart, go right ahead. But don't give because you think it's going to impress God to give everything. Don't listen to the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers who prostitute the gospel to fatten their own pockets and say, if you just give with faith and put it all in the plate now, God will bless you for that as they fly to the next arena in their private jet and leave destitute people or people who ran up their credit card. Look into these teachers. They always say, well, Solomon was rich. See, God blesses his leaders. Yeah, God told Solomon not to heap up for yourselves horses and money and women like the Gentile leaders do. That wasn't proof that God was blessing Solomon. Sometimes money is more a curse than it is a blessing. Remember, the whole religious system was designed to represent God. What kind of God would it 
exalt the rich and require a widow to go destitute in order to please God. She gave out of her poverty. They gave out of their abundance. It reminds me, I like to watch golf. There I said it publicly. I watch golf. I go home on Sundays and I watch the end of the golf tournament. It's relaxing. It's kind of relaxing to watch professionals look foolish playing a game that makes me look foolish all the time. But at some point on the Sunday broadcast, they invite the CEO of the company that's sponsoring the tournament up to the booth to talk about how much they've given back to the community this week. We are just so thrilled at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am in the most expensive real estate in the world that we gave a million dollars to Monterey. Like, Monterey needs a million dollars. That doesn't even, like, buy a shed in somebody's backyard. I, I hope the money made it to Salinas, you know? And we're just so proud to, to support this community. We gave a mil- Did I mention we gave a million dollars? Well, the winner of the tournament's getting 1.2. And you, Mr. CEO, Mr. Stearns, I looked you up. You made $28 million last year. So if you wrote a check for a million, you'd still have $27 million. And you would get the tax write-off which is what the whole thing is for AT&T. It's a huge tax write-off and some good press. And AT&T bigwigs get to hang out in the luxury box with the players on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of the tournament. So I know that. I can still enjoy the whole thing. It doesn't leave a bitter taste in my mouth. It's just the way the world runs. But I'm not going to be impressed with your million dollars for charity. Even worse, though, when it's a system that's supposed to represent God. Bad enough when it's a golf tournament. Horrible when it's a system that's supposed to represent God. And so Jesus says, as his disciples are like, wow, look at this building. Whoa, look at the gold. Look at the jewels. Look, listen to all the money people are putting in the box. Jesus says, yeah, it's all coming down. Really? You would tear the whole, you know, why would you do that? It's for you. It's not for me. That's the problem. It's not for my father anymore. It's just a public spectacle of, it's the Tower of Babel. It's man exalting man, and only a certain segment of society exalting itself. And worst of all, it's misrepresenting God's character to the world. So it's coming down, and the whole thing came down in A.D. 70. The city was sieged, sacked, hundreds of thousands died. They built scaffolding around the temple, lit it on fire, melted all the gold off of it and collected it, and then stone by stone tore the whole temple down. Application then as we close. What's the main application here? This is... This is scary for me as a religious leader. The main application is religious leaders become corrupt. They're all human beings. They're all sinners. Don't exalt them. Reverence them because they are spokesmen for God, but don't reverence them in and of themselves. 
you're reverencing the Word of God in as much as the Word of God is being rightly handled. But keep an eye out. Pray for your leaders. We're easy targets for Satan. Take down the leaders and the whole edifice collapses. Always raising up new leaders. Because the same ones over and over and over again, that's when you start to have problems. Read the scriptures. Study the scriptures. Go home and reread what you were taught today and, and come to your own conclusions. And if you differ from what I saw, come make an appointment. And we need to talk these things through. You see any funny business coming from leadership, go to them humbly. Go to an elder meeting. Don't parade it on Facebook. Have I said that enough times? That makes you look worse than the leaders. But the secondary application is to really think about your giving. There, there is a secondary application here. Before you ask how much should I give, you should ask why do I give? Why do I give? That'll determine how much you give. Does your giving make you feel better or more righteous than others? Watch out. The left hand shouldn't know what the right hand's doing when it comes to giving. Do you give out of guilt and obligation like, I hope God's happy with me, or are you a cheerful giver? I love to give. God gave me everything. I love to give. I love to see his kingdom advance. I love to see his name made great. Do you give out of your poverty until it affects your lifestyle or not, and not just out of your abundance? You, you should give till it hurts a little. That's a good rule of thumb. Not until you're destitute like the widow, but until you have to say no to something you could say yes to. And that'll train your heart to say, you know what, the thing I'm saying no to, I'm saying yes to something better. I'm saying yes to something eternal. It's okay to have some things and to go on vacations. But every once in a while, you should say, you know what, we, we can't have that thing. And uh, the vacation's only going to be a couple days, not two weeks. Because I want to send this team to Southeast Asia. I'm not going on the trip, but I'm going to be a sender. You know what? I do want to see a glorious nursery so we attract more young families so they can hear the gospel. But if we don't serve in the nursery, then what's the point? If, If there's no babies to go in the nursery, what's the point? And there's plenty of gorgeous churches around our country that are empty Because people stopped obeying the scriptures and stopped trusting God. So do you give more than just money? Yes, certainly give. But give your time, your talent, and your treasure. Jesus gave it all so we could freely give. Amen. Father, thank you for giving it all so we can freely give joyfully and cheerfully, knowing that our future is secure in Christ. Guard the leadership of this church. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.